Please join me in prayer. Our Lord and our God, now as we hear your word, fill us with your spirit. Soften our hearts that we may delight in your presence. Sharpen our minds that we may discern your truth. Shape our wills that we may desire your ways. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Now, a reading from the Old Testament from Psalm 7. O Lord my God, in you I take refuge. Save me from all my pursuers and deliver me. Or like a lion, they will tear me apart. They will drag me away with no one to rescue. O Lord my God, if I have done this, if there is wrong in my hands, if I have repaid my ally with harm or plundered my foe without cause, then let the enemy pursue and overtake me. Trample my life to the ground and lay my soul in the dust. Rise up, O Lord, in your anger. Lift yourself up against the fury of my enemies. Awake, O my God, you have appointed a judgment. Let the assembly of the peoples be gathered around you, and over it take your seat on high. The Lord judges the peoples. Judge me, O Lord, according to my righteousness and according to the integrity that is in me. O let the evil of the wicked come to an end, but establish the righteous, you who test the minds and hearts, O righteous God. God is my shield who saves the upright in heart. God is a righteous judge and a God who has indignation every day. If one does not repent, God will wet his sword. He has bent and strung his bow. He has prepared his deadly weapons, making his arrows fiery shafts. See how they conceive evil and are pregnant with mischief and bring forth lies. They make a pit, digging it out, and fall into the hole that they have made. Their mischief returns upon their own heads, and on their own heads their violence descends. I will give to the Lord the thanks due to his righteousness, and sing praise to the name of the Lord, the Most High. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Our second reading this morning comes from Acts chapter 9, verses 1 through 19. Listen again for God's word to us. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and he asked for letters to the synagogues in Damascus so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, He might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and he heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city and you'll be told what you must do. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound, but didn't see anyone. And Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. 
For three days he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. In Damascus, there was a disciple named Ananias. And the Lord called to him in a vision, Ananias. Yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord told him, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. And in a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Lord, Ananias answered, I've heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your holy people in Jerusalem. And he has come here with authority from the chief priests to arrest all who call on your name. But the Lord said to Ananias, go. This man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. And I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Then Ananias went to the house and entered it and placing his hands on Saul. He said, Brother Saul, the Lord, Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, he has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes, and he could see again. And he got up, and he was baptized, and after taking some food, he regained his strength. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Brothers and sisters, please join me again in prayer. Gracious Lord, the preaching of your word, with the blessing of your spirit, grant that insofar as it is true, it shall be undergirded by your power and by your love. And grant that insofar as it is false, it shall be swiftly forgotten and do no harm. Through Christ our Lord. Amen. Brothers and sisters, Paul was out for blood. With the zeal of a righteous warrior, of his own initiative, Paul had requested and been granted letters from the high priest to synagogues in Damascus. And these letters granted Paul temple authority to bind and bring anybody following Christ to Jerusalem to stand trial. Now, Damascus was a foreign territory, albeit one under Roman rule, uh, and it was about a 160-mile journey from Jerusalem, headed north. And Paul undertakes this big journey. It's a big, proactive step for him to try to chase down followers of Christ. And it's on this journey that he has a revelation from God. And although Paul is often depicted in paintings as uh, riding on a horse on the road to Damascus, Uh, or maybe more precisely, falling off of a horse when he sees the big flash of light, Paul was more likely walking. Uh, There's no mention in Scripture of him being on a horse. And on foot, to cover that 160 miles, it would have taken him probably a little over a week to reach Damascus. So again, this appears to have been a really ambitious project for Paul to undertake, and one that provided him, uh, as he was en route to Damascus, with a lot of time for thought, uh, for conversation with traveling companions, and again, premeditated, uh, zealous, quote, breathing threats and murder against the disciples of Christ. Paul later notes in Acts about this time in his life, quote, I was convinced that I ought to do many things against the name of Jesus of Nazareth. 
and that this is what I did in Jerusalem. With authority received from the the chief priests, I not only locked up many of the saints in prison, but I also cast my vote against them when they were being condemned to death. By punishing them often in all the synagogues, I tried to force them to blaspheme. And since I was so furiously enraged at them, I pursued them even to foreign cities. End quote. The word persecution, it literally has the meaning of following after someone. Persecution literally has that meaning of following after someone, pursuing and chasing. And this is precisely what Paul was doing in going to Damascus. He was proactively tracking down Jesus' followers. And it's never stated in Scripture exactly why Paul hated the followers of Christ so much. It could be a sense that they were breaking God's law. If you remember in the Gospels, uh, it was notably Jesus' breaking of the Sabbath that led some of the Pharisees and some Jewish elders to believe that Jesus had to die because he broke the Sabbath. Other reasons why Paul was so upset with them, though, could have been uh, concerned that Jesus' followers, uh, like those who were following other messiahs at the time, that this could have caused some kind of uprising that would have made a massive backlash from the Romans, backlash from the Romans against uh, the Jewish people. Uh, the Jewish people could have been brutally suppressed because of people who were following Jesus. Paul might have also been worried uh, about the claims of Jesus' divinity. Uh, or the call to go make disciples of all nations, uh, claims that anybody uh, could be ushered in as God's people. Uh, Paul could have found these to be utterly unacceptable. But whatever the exact reason uh, for Paul's being enraged at the followers of Christ, Paul believed he was completely justified in trying to capture them, trying to stop them, trying to stomp them out. And again, Paul's taking this long journey to Damascus, and it's not till the end, uh, as he's approaching Damascus, that this flash from heaven comes and knocks him down to the ground with sight-burning light and a soul-churning question, Saul, Saul, which is Paul's Hebrew name, why do you persecute me? Paul was understandably befuddled, confused, uh, but God then commanded him to get up, go to Damascus, and wait there. So Paul gets up, and as he's getting up, though, he realizes he can't see anything. So the people who are traveling alongside him, with him, they've got to guide him by the hand into Damascus, and then set him up at the house of a man named Judas, who lived on Straight Street. Uh, Straight Street was probably just a major street in Damascus. Uh, They're running north and south, or east and west. And for three days, Paul's there. He doesn't eat anything. He doesn't drink anything. He just sits there, sans eyesight, in darkness. And it's at this point in the scripture that we hear about Ananias. And this is a different Ananias than we read about a few weeks back in Acts chapter 5. Ananias and Sapphira. Um, who indulged in the kind of lying that fatally dissolves communities. Uh, This Ananias that we hear about in today's passage, this Ananias lived in Damascus. Uh, He lived in Damascus, and he was a devout Jew, and he was a disciple of Jesus. 
And as Paul notes in, uh, and that's what Paul notes later on in Acts 22. Um, now, although Ananias was not somebody who had fled from Jerusalem and per- persecution that Paul was participating in there, uh, he is somebody who apparently knew about that persecution and had even heard specifically about Paul. He knew also that Paul was coming to Damascus for the explicit temple authorized purpose of arresting people like himself and other brothers and sisters in Christ. Now, we'll shortly, in a moment, explore a little bit more fully the term uh, enemy uh, in a little bit more detail. Uh, But for Ananias, Paul, in this moment, is an enemy. His intentions and his actions are not only diametrically opposed to those of Ananias, uh, but they also threatened Ananias with direct physical harm. It's worth noting... Uh, as an aside, that Paul himself, uh, in his murderous mission to Damascus, he would have felt uh, the same way about Ananias. Ananias would see Paul as an enemy, uh, and Paul saw Ananias as an enemy, undermining and threatening God's people. But one can imagine in this moment, uh, with Paul on the prowl, Ananias uh, earnestly praying something like we heard um, from Psalm 7. He might have been praying something like, Oh, Lord, my God, in you I take my refuge. Save me from all my pursuers and deliver me. Or like a lion, they will tear me apart. They will drag me away with no one to rescue. And we can imagine uh, the possible relief Ananias might have felt at first when Christ uh, hailed him in a vision. Uh, And Ananias responded faithfully, here I am, a response to God that echoes from the likes of Abraham, Isaiah, Samuel. Ananias says, here I am, God. But Ananias uh, must have pretty quickly had some pause, and I would imagine some mushrooming concern when Christ then proceeds to tell him, get up and go to Saul. And I think Ananias must have had some concern because his response seems to reveal as much when he effectively says, Lord, wow, you know, I've actually been hearing a lot about this guy. Uh, He's bad news. He's trying to arrest anybody who professes faith in you and have them killed. So, you know, going to see Saul on Straight Street, that seems ill-advised. But then, when Jesus restresses his call for Ananias to get up and go, Ananias goes. This is amazingly brave uh, and a witness of the deep abiding trust that he's got in Christ. But I think upon reflection, we shouldn't necessarily be too surprised that Ananias ultimately just goes. We should remember at this point in history, in the church's history, there was no written New Testament But the stories and the teachings of Jesus were being circulated uh, through a budding oral tradition. And Ananias was surely familiar with Jesus' teaching uh, that we have recounted in the Sermon on the Mount. Quote, Jesus' teaching, You've heard what it was said. You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be children of your Father in heaven. For he makes the sun to rise on the evil and on the good, And he sends rain on the righteous and on the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, 
what reward, what, what reward do you have? Don't even tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers and sisters, what more are you doing than others? Don't even the Gentiles do the same? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. It's interesting in that teaching from Jesus, uh, while love your neighbor is very expressly a command in the Hebrew scriptures uh, with which Christ would have been intimately familiar, hate your enemy is not in the Hebrew scriptures. So when Jesus says, you've heard it said, you shall love your neighbor, hate your enemy, Jesus is presumably highlighting a common sentiment that's just out there. Love your neighbor, hate your enemy. And of course, that's a sentiment that wasn't just common in first century Palestine, uh, but sadly has cut across human history and culture. Hate, hating our enemies, hating anyone, it entails an ill will, it entails anger, it entails a desire for somebody else's harm, it entails outrage at their success, joy at their failure, a distaste at their presence. Hatred is a destructive emotion for everybody involved. And interpersonal hate is also usually bound up uh, with the perception or the past reality that the hated person or the hated group has harmed you or is a real threat to you. And as such, hatred and fear, they usually go hand in hand. They're usually mutually reinforcing of one another. We tend to hate what we fear. We tend to fear what we hate. And it's worth noting as well that we tend to be uh, most zealous, uh, most prone to hatred and fear um, when we claim or assume uh, some type of moral high ground. We, ironically, can become most dangerous to ourselves and other people uh, when we believe we're fighting for a cause or a group bigger than ourselves, whether it's our family, our community, our nation, even God, as though God needs our protection or as though we could even provide it. Uh, Reinhold, he, Reinhold Niebuhr uh, examined this dynamic in his book, Moral Man and Immoral Society. Moral Man and Immoral Society. Uh, he highlighted that under the, a banner of selfless service to, again, whether it's family, community, group, institution, organization, nation, any cause for any of those groups, under the banner of selfless service to those things, we tend and can feel emboldened and quite justified in aggressively pursuing and defending them uh, and aggrandizing them, even over and against other people, especially other people that we see as threats. So we have this ironic dynamic amongst us uh, in which our righteous indignation often burns hottest. It often burns hottest when we're unleashing it on behalf of somebody else because it seems to provide this justifying sense of selflessness. Um, of course, that's one that often goes off the rails, as it did with Paul. Because we know uh, it goes off the rails because Christ tells us so. Uh, in Christ, we're called uh, to check and grow out of those kinds of impulses to hate others. Uh, even when we feel like we're protecting someone else and we're hating some threat to them, um, we're called to grow away from those impulses for hatred. We're called to grow in another way. We're called to get up and go to our enemies. We're called in Christ to get up and go to those who persecute. We're called even to get up and go to them close enough to touch them, to pray with them, to embrace them in peace. 
And as a disciple in Christ, again, Ananias, he had to have learned this life-giving way of the Lord to go towards those who were persecuting you. He'd learned, he'd learned Jesus' incredible words as well on this front. Uh, in the midst of Christ's own crucifixion, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Christ being crucified, praying for those who are crucifying him. Ananias might similarly have heard that Stephen, in his last breath, after being stoned for following Christ, prays, Lord, don't hold this sin against them. And Ananias probably also had even heard the parable about the Samaritan who cared for his Jewish neighbor lying beaten on the side of the road to Jericho. Ananias knew from all these teachings in Christ, from every way in which the Holy Spirit had been growing him to be the person and the human that God made him to be, he knew that the way of Christ entailed a kind of love that extends even to those people who are not part of your group and even more so who are out to hurt you. We're called to love our enemies, those who are out to hurt us. And it's key to note here that uh, loving one's enemies does not necessarily mean having uh, warm feelings for them. Uh, it doesn't necessarily mean also being oblivious or indifferent to the type of harm that they can inflict. In his sermon, Loving Your Enemies, uh, Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. hit on this point. In that sermon, uh, Loving Your Enemies, he highlighted that loving them is not necessarily a matter of liking them or having affection toward them. It's rather, quote, a creative, redemptive goodwill for all. And it's a love in which one, quote, loves the person who does an evil deed, even though we hate the deed that he does. According to Dr. King, uh, this type of love for enemies, it entails having the capacity to forgive. It entails recognizing that, quote, there is some good in the worst of us and some evil in the best of us. This type of love entails seeking not to, quote, defeat or humiliate the enemy, but to win his friendship and understanding. Dr. King went on along this line, quote, while abhorring segregation, we shall love the segregationist. This is the only way to create the beloved community. So while it's still somewhat disconcerting, uh, Jesus' command uh, to Ananias uh, to get up and go to Paul probably would not have been something that was shocking to Ananias. And it's also important to note uh, that Paul's conversion which is what we often focus on when we look at this passage. Today we're looking more at Ananias. But Paul's conversion, his conversion, his turning to Christ, it's not complete until Ananias comes and bears physical presence. Until Ananias comes and bears that physical, physical presence as the hands, the feet, the heart, the mouth of Christ and the Christ-like ways in the world uh, that Paul was seeking to snuff out, it's not until Ananias comes and lays hand on Paul, prays for Paul, that the scales fall from his eyes, that the Holy Spirit pours forth into his heart, that he gets up and see again, is baptized, 
a commission to be an instrument of God, an ambassador of Christ, commissioned to proclaim the good news of our salvation and healing in Christ Jesus, and to spread the unbelievable invitation into the kingdom and family of God. It's not until Ananias comes to Paul that Paul is able to be sent forth to proclaim to everyone else that for our sake God made Jesus to be sin who knew no sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. That Paul could say and go forth as he proclaims in his letter to the Colossians that Christ is the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, the one in whom all things were created, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or powers, all these things have been created in Christ Jesus and for him, for Christ was before all things, and in Christ all things hold together. Christ is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn of the dead, so that he might come to have the first place in everything. For in Christ all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him God was pleased to reconcile to himself all these things, whether on earth or in heaven, by making peace of the blood of his cross. None of that happens. Paul doesn't say any of that. He's not converted to any of that until he's touched by Ananias and prayed over by Ananias. Until Ananias got up and went to Paul. So, brothers and sisters, I want us to consider this morning who God is calling us to get up and go to today. I imagine, unlike Ananias... We don't have anybody who's seeking uh, to physically harm any of us personally, I imagine. But most of us probably have some person or some group that we take to be our enemy to some extent. At a minimum, I mean those folks we believe are acting in opposition to our values or people that we hold dear. At a maximum, I mean those folks we believe are intentionally out to harm us or that which we cherish. This is, of course, a dynamic that's particularly evident in our political discourse today, especially via media outlets of various sorts. Uh, But this type of dynamic also hits home for many of us with family members or coworkers, with friends or former friends, with neighbors, uh, with fellow church members. While I will say I think there's a bit of historical amnesia to think that things are more epically divided and awful than ever, either in U.S. history or any time in history, But it is true that we have deep distrust of those other people. And it's coursing throughout our society right now. There's a palpable disbelief in the air about those other people and what they could think or value. How they could possibly think that. How they could possibly want that. There's active distrust uh, amongst us to wanting to be anywhere near those people. We're shocked, we're unnerved, we're exhausted by those people. And yet, the church, uh, while it is its own place sometimes of division and disagreement, I want to encourage us, brothers and sisters, that it also offers a core space uh, for hope uh, through the power of the Holy Spirit on this front. In a book called A House United, How the Church Can Save the World, Alan Hilton uh, writes, If Christians would learn and practice collaborating and building community across differences, we could export that new skill and heal our land. 
The people of our city need someone to teach them how to find things they can do together well, how to stay in the same room when they disagree on important things, how to talk to one another about those important things long enough to make something better than either person could have done alone. Loving our neighbor as ourself and being faithful citizens of our nation may just require this type of ministry. Now, I want to note that uh, Reverend Hilton will be coming here to preach on December 2nd, so we can return to that conversation. But in the interim, uh, before December 2nd, I want to encourage, again, each of us to be like Ananias, to get up and go, to think about someone with whom you're presently in opposition, you're presently in tension, or someone with whom you know you disagree, but don't necessarily talk with much. I'm encouraging us, inviting us, to ask that person to go grab coffee, go grab lunch, get close enough to shake hands, to pray together, to ask, how are you doing? What are you worried about? What are you going through these days? To ask things like, how do you enjoy spending time? What do you care about? Where do you see God's goodness in your life? Or if the person is not uh, into God talk right now, what do you do that you find life-giving? And then after a week or two of that initial conversation, I encourage you to invite them again to coffee or lunch and ask them some tenser questions. Why do you believe that? Why did you vote that way? Why do you speak this way? And I invite us to ask these questions with attentive purpose to learn and understand. I invite us to ask and listen. I invite us not to respond and definitely to check an impulse to formulate a response uh, to insert right after the other person finishes talking or before they finish talking. I invite us to ask these questions and patiently just listen. And if the time is right, ask a follow-up question. Say, tell me more about that. I want to understand that better. I invite us to ask simply to learn and get to know this other person. This other person who, like you, like me, is crafted in the eternal image of God who, like you and like me, was made for relationship and companionship, for justice and peace, for truth and beauty and goodness under God. And I invite us to have these conversations. I invite us to pray. And I invite us to see what grows from there. And in the words uh, that Paul had taken to heart uh, and wrote in his letter to the Romans, I invite us along all these lines to bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Don't be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Don't claim to be wiser than you are. Don't repay anyone evil for evil, but take thought of what is noble in the sight of all. And if it is possible... So far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. 
To God be the glory, brothers and sisters, forever and ever. Amen.